Welcome to the Redemption Hill Sermon Podcast. For more information, feel free to visit our website, redemptionshill.com. Yeah, it is good to be here with you. Um, the last couple months, we've been firmly rooted in the Sermon on the Mount, looking specifically at uh, the Beatitudes for most of the time, and then the text that immediately follow it. Now, one of the things that I, I hope over the years as we've been going through uh, exegetical preaching, one of the things that I hope that we're learning to do uh, is to zoom out before we approach a text and look at the greater themes or situations that are involved before we try and understand what exactly is happening when we read a specific section of Scripture because uh, it, it can be at worst dangerous not to do so because we can completely get things wrong as far as what the Bible is saying, or at best we could just maybe miss the full beauty and magnitude of what's going on. So uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount is a section of Scripture that's ripe with immeasurable grace, Jesus's sermon. But it is also one that if we forget to look widely at the, the theme and the context, we'll probably end up uh, severely limiting what we understand of it. Like the way and the reason Jesus is preaching it, it'll, it'll never really register to us unless we do that. So before jumping into the specific elements of, of this text today, I, I want to step back uh, to, to help us do that, to remind us uh, of the moment in history that this sermon is given, which is, I think, the only way we can understand what is actually happening inside this sermon. So in the Old Testament, God spoke to his people. Right? You, you read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, you see, and there's this rich history of him doing that. Sometimes he would speak to uh, specific people directly. Uh, sometimes he would speak to leaders, and, and he would tell them to kind of tell his people certain messages. Uh, at times he would uh, anoint leaders to kind of be these figureheads for him. Uh, and at other times when the church or the people of God were forgetting God, he would actually send what was called a prophet. And the prophet's job is to call the people to hear the voice of God again and draw them back into the place where they're listening to and following God. No matter how it was done, God was intimately involved in speaking to his people in the Old Testament. Speaking to them, he would lead them, he would direct them. If you've read some of the Old Testament texts, sometimes he punishes them uh, and he blesses them. But no matter what, there's this constant intimacy with God and his people. But then after the book of Malachi, uh, that's the last book of the Old Testament, there's 400 years of just complete silence. Uh, nothing. No prophecies, no prophets, uh, no helpful correction, no encouragements, no uh, reminders. This means for a 400-year gap between the book of Malachi uh, and really the, the tale of Jesus coming into the, the, the world, men and women kind of led themselves by themselves without correction. Uh, there was no great leader, no Holy Spirit kind of intervention the way that we depend on it now, no great king, just men not anointed by God doing whatever they thought best at the time, which is uh, kind of a scary thing to think about. If you've ever played the game Telephone as a kid or familiar with the premise, you know over time things getting passed along uh, from person to person, they tend to break down and get really, really messed up. Things get crossed, things get misinterpreted. Uh, in some way, this kind of describes where the, the people of God found themselves in this point of history. They were familiar with the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They were uh, familiar with 
some of the, the prophetic teachings as well. Uh, but as time went by, uh, without intervention, things started getting distorted. Even though they had these Old Testament words, they began to get distorted in what it looked like to be God's people, relate to God, and how we relate to the world as God's people. So something had kind of got off in that 400-year gap. Jesus came down from heaven unmistakably to die for the sins of his people. That is 100% the reason that he came. But we have to see at this moment in history, when this first uh, message is given by Jesus, Jesus was also kind of riding the, the ship. He's intervening to realign God's people with the reality of what it actually meant to be uh, followers of God. Uh, he was fixing things that had gotten off over 400 years of time. In simple words, he's recalibrating things because things had gone sideways on them. With that in mind, I think it can help us grasp why Jesus preaches the sermon that he does. Why he starts the Beatitudes, if things are off, why he starts with, uh, or why he starts the sermon with the Beatitudes and then moves to the salt and light text. Because at the core, the, the basics, the foundation of being God's people, that, even that needed to be fixed. So the Beatitudes, the blessed uh, are those who are texts, are in effect resetting the understanding of who we are. From a base level, God's people, they, they don't get who they're supposed to be anymore. Jesus enters in with the Beatitudes to correct that. Their very understanding of what faith was meant to do in our lives just got really, really turned around. Now, the beautiful part about Jesus's wisdom is that recalibration was a big deal for them in that moment in history, but it's also kind of a big deal for us. We, at times, need realignment. We need correction. At times we all need these mental, uh, these gentle nudges from Jesus to kind of get back into a healthy faith and a healthy way of following him. And the salt and light texts were the same way. Uh, since who we are was off, then the what we do is God's people. Uh, that was off as well and needed addressing. So Jesus intentionally starts reframing our identity and our calling. Things are off. We need to recalibrate both of those very large parts of our faith. Now, in the next part of the Sermon on the Mount, what we're in today, Jesus will begin addressing another major problem. He set out, uh, just like the other section, to kind of recalibrate things that have gone wrong. The problem here that he's looking to, to address, the Beatitudes is who we are, uh, then what we do with salt and light. What he's looking to address here is how God's people view and relate to the law and the prophets. This is the big, big thing. And if you track the Sermon on the Mount, this theme actually goes for, for many, many sections going on. Before we jump into the exact text, though, I, I want to press on us together for a moment by, by asking just a basic question on how we come in here. Uh, do you, at this moment in your life, do you consider yourself teachable? Could it be conceivable to you that today maybe the Lord may want to recalibrate or realign some things uh, in your heart or in your mind that possibly your aiming may have gotten just a little bit off and the loving kindness of our Savior may want to align that today? Is it possible that, that you came here because it's a, you know, just Sunday and, and Jesus wanted you here because he wanted to adjust some stuff? Now, I ask that because the teachers of the time during the Sermon on the Mount, they were the Pharisees, and this group of people, they were scholars. Uh, and yet, even in all of their wisdom, they were profoundly wrong in how they viewed the Old Testament and the Law and the Prophets. 
These scribes and Pharisees were highly, highly educated. They devoted themselves to education, and they were also highly dedicated in their understanding of the law and their keeping of the law, and yet all of their their education and all of their dedication, it still led them to a point where they desperately needed correction. I I hope that's a, a moment that kind of gives us humility. They spent a lot of their life trying to get it right, and they didn't. They needed their way reformed. Could it be possible that Jesus wants to reform some of the ways that we're looking at things too? I, I hope that we would have kind of an honest heart that would say, yeah, that maybe is possible, or else this text won't be very helpful to us. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20 is the text for today. And the other uh, messages we had read all the way through, but I'm just going to shift right into this text. Jesus says this, right after the Beatitudes, Right after light or salt and light of the world, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. These verses right here serve as kind of a foundational principle, an intro. And then right after that, Jesus will begin moving from uh, general to uh, specific. So so think right now we're going to get this big idea, a, a new way to recalibrate things. And after that, he'll explain specific ways that this recalibration touches into our life. Basically, he's going to give real world scenarios after this part of the message uh, about how this actually plays out. Again, context is key, though. Jesus lays out who we are and what we do. Overhauling the the misinterpreted way for many back then. This wasn't a minor tweak. Uh, Jesus was was blowing their mind and what he was presenting to them as what he was laying out looked nothing like what the Pharisees were doing. And therefore, if the Pharisees were teaching the other people how to follow God and they weren't doing it, it also looked really nothing like what the people of God were doing. Now imagine putting... You don't ever want to put yourself as a hero in the Bible, but but imagine yourself there in the story. Imagine you're a a religious leader and you have dedicated your life and your dad dedicated his life and your grandfather dedicated their life to reading and learning and applying and teaching others what God wanted. You were legitimately in your mind trying to follow God the best way you could. This wasn't a, a side hustle. This wasn't a hobby. This was your life, your identity, your You're everything. You devoted all to that. And then this guy comes along and he hasn't been educated like you have. Uh, He hasn't been uh, really sitting under the best rabbis or teachers like you have. And he comes from this like tiny backwoods little place in the country. And yet he begins telling everyone the correct way to follow God. And his teachings, they seem almost foreign to what you know and what you've taught. This tension was likely what what the sentiment of many people listening uh, were hearing at this point. Now, if you think about how we react when people critique us, because they would have felt critiqued, there's a common theme. There's a normal MO. There's something that we go to quite often. Normally, we will return our critique uh, with a critique uh, of whoever's kind of coming against us, right? So essentially, uh, we'll, we'll look at things like this. Will you say blank about me 
But what about this and this and this, these ways that you miss the mark? Our common play uh, to to, uh, respond when we are critiqued is to invalidate the person who's coming against us in order to feel better about who we are and what we're doing. As Jesus reformed faith and life as God's people, it's certain that some listening would have begun to form a critique in their minds against Jesus's words. And that critique would have been something like this. This Jesus of Nazareth. He says he understands the kingdom of God. He studies he understands blessing. He pontificates about knowing the true identity of God's people. But, but he didn't say a single thing about the Sabbath. Who does he think he is? He didn't say anything about that. He didn't say anything about how to not be sinful on our holy day. He didn't mention tithing. He didn't mention weekly fasting. He didn't mention uh, prayer in the temple. He didn't mention proper observation of our festivals. He didn't mention ritual purity and how you need to wash your hands and who you need to stay away from. How can this man claim to be a teacher, a leader on how to follow God and yet not say anything in his sermon about specific laws in the Old Testament and obedience to them? How can he so blatantly disregard our sacred texts and claim to lead us? This would have been their play. See, those who weren't fond of Jesus' teaching would have quickly accused him of being a heretic and a fool, one who abandoned scriptures and was trying to lead people astray. Like you're, you're not paying attention to the important stuff. You, you surely don't know anything. And this is why Jesus starts by saying in this section of Scripture, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. For them, when a person says law and the prophets, they're referring to, in a general sense, all of Scripture. So Jesus is saying emphatically to them, don't you dare think that I've come to demolish or destroy or put away Scripture. Don't think that I'm trying to degrade or undermine the holy text. A a helpful reminder here uh, for us is is they didn't have the New Testament back then. So all of, uh, of Scripture to them means all the Old Testament to us. So Jesus is saying something pretty helpful to us as well. Don't you, modern day church, don't you dare think that I came to throw away the Old Testament. Be careful. That's not what I came to do. If you can see the greater scenario, the the Pharisees would have accused Jesus of throwing away the Old Testament, of abolishing it, because he didn't see it in the way that they did, right? He, He still understood and he related to the text, but not in the way that they did. The scribes and the Pharisees had worked extremely hard to obey Old Testament laws and teach other people to do so. So much so that they scoured uh, their Old Testament, and in that, they pulled 613 specific commands or laws. Not 600, uh, not like actually six, but that they fit into. There's literally 613 specific things that you can or cannot do. They scoured the text to pull those out so that they could know what they needed to obey and what they needed to do. But it gets even kind of bigger than this. It's not just that they pulled those laws out of the Old Testament. They begin to add to them as a way to make them uh, more understandable about how to follow them. Right. So if there's 613 specific laws, then they would add like maybe five or six to each in order that that one could be understood better. What's an example of this? God's people from the beginning are told to rest on the Sabbath. Put away work on the Sabbath. 
that the seventh day of the week is holy, it's set apart and reserved for God. We have six days to build our kingdom, to do our thing, to work on our stuff. Uh, and then on the seventh day, we stop our working to rest and tend to recalibrate and remember the creator of all, God. Now, depending on, on how we hear this at times, you'd be like, how can he expect that? This was never meant to be a harsh punishment. This was meant to be kindness and grace. It's a law that forces us to stop working. Like, what argument could we make to say, you're so mean that you won't let me work every day? It, it's for our own good. It's so we could be uh, restored. It's so that we could have our, per, our perspective put on God regularly and that we could recharge. Now, the Pharisees decided, since it says do not work on the Sabbath, they decided that we need to better define work and rest. Because right? everyone's looking for a loophole. Well, that's not really work. So they came up with 39 specific things that were work that you absolutely could not do if you wanted to follow this. So the one rule, right, the one commandment, do, do not work on the Sabbath, turned into 1 plus 39. They decided, uh, they decided even to, to put limits on how far you could walk. Like there's a literal amount of steps that you could take. Uh, and if you took over that, you were working. So imagine you, you count and all of a sudden you're like, I can't get home. You just fall. You're like, John, pick me up. You can't, no, that's your work. I, I, I'm not going inside today. They literally would put an amount there. They, they did things like deciding that picking up your mat or making your bed was work. If you've read the story when Jesus heals a man, that's why the Pharisees get mad. He's working. He made his bed. And she's like, but I healed him. Uh, they, they say don't pick grain, so like you can't eat food out of your garden. They say don't help your neighbor. They decided that even tying something was work. Sorry, bud, can't, can't help you tie your sandal today. It's the Sabbath. They had become hyper aware of the laws and making sure that they followed them to where their, their 613 laws and all the additions that they had created to the laws that were not actually in the Bible had become what it meant to be the holy people of God. Do you understand that? Following these rules and the additions and doing it perfectly, that's what it means to be God's people is what they thought. Adherence to external behaviors for them was everything. And you could synthesize this down. Faith was behavior modification. Those who've modified their behavior are God's people. And those who have not are clearly not God's people. So as Jesus recalibrated the framework of faith without mentioning a strict observation of all the, 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 the radical uh, rules like they had, they, they hated it. How can you pretend to teach when you don't mention a single one of these things that are so important to us? This is why Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish the law just because I don't look at it the way that you do. Don't think that I've come to preach that holiness or laws aren't important. Jesus takes this a step further by saying, not only did I not come to abolish the law, but I've actually come to fulfill it. Which is to say, it's not that I don't think that the Old, the Old Testament is important. It's actually so important that I came specifically to fulfill it myself. The best way in our language to understand this word fulfilled is, is carried out. I have come specifically so the Old Testament could be carried out. Don't, don't think that I don't think that it's important. He expounds further again by saying essentially not even a, a comma, not the smallest part of the law will be taken out until it is accomplished. 
In those two verses, we find a claim that over time infuriates the Jewish leaders. When Jesus speaks of fulfilling or carrying out the law himself, he's saying all the words in the Old Testament, all of its promises, all the laws, all the priests, all the, the, the kings, all the prophets, all the judges, all the talk of future redemption, every single bit of that pointed to him. I've come to, to fill, fulfill it. I've come not to bury the Old Testament. I've come to see it come to pass. He was himself everything that the Old Testament pointed to. Theologians have said it, and I think it's helpful. The Old Testament is the gospel in bud, and the New Testament is the, is the gospel in bloom. Jesus saying, I've come so that the gospel could, could bloom, so you could see it happen. Now here's the tension that we as modern day readers find ourselves living under. The Jewish leaders and the people back then, they were obsessed with the laws and following them. They were obsessed with the rules and the, not, the, the nuances and how well they obeyed them. But they didn't understand the reality of a coming Savior. In their mind, because we, we sometimes look a little bit harsher on people than, than we should. They didn't understand a Savior was coming. They, they didn't understand that a Savior would come obey perfectly for them. There wasn't in their mind God in the flesh whose righteousness they would receive. They wouldn't be, uh, there wouldn't be a perfect sacrifice given for them to cover all of their shame. This is why they so desperately wanted to observe all the external commands. Because to them, their identity as God's people hinged on their personal ability to follow God's holy rules on their own and to be perfect on their own. Now we as the New Testament church, we have been blessed of seeing more than they did. We're not smarter. We have more scripture than they do. We can see that the law was partially given, not fully, was partially given to show us that we can't be perfect. The law is there to show us that on our own we cannot and will never be able to obey God fully. So we need uh, another. This is the gospel. We need another, a savior to come and to fulfill perfectly the, the righteousness that we need. That we on our own would never be able to live out on our own. Now, we now realize and live in a better understanding of, of grace than they did. The unmerited favor of God is given to his people through Jesus' perfection. Why do we not crush ourselves if we mess up on a law? Because Jesus' perfection stands over me. There's, there's grace there. Now, we understand that. We understand the gospel is the good news of Christ coming to live out the perfect demands of God. And simultaneously, he came to die for the penalty of our sin. The point is, we know if we are gospel-centered, that it is the obedience of another that makes us gods. Whereas they struggled to believe it was their own obedience that made them gods. These two viewpoints have really caused both of us a lot of problems. The Pharisees are set on obeying external rules. The best way to say it is they, they miss the forest through the trees, though. Their focus is, is so narrow on individual commands and individual rituals that they miss the bigger picture of the heart of inner obedience and faith. Allegiance to the letter of the law caused them to miss the very spirit of the law. Over and over in the sections that follow, Jesus will show us one big thing. External behavior modification separate from our heart was not the reason Christ came to die. He came for all of our person, for our body, for our mind, for our soul and our spirit. And he won't relent until he has all of that. 
This is why the, the, it's interesting that, that, that we forget this sometimes. But even the Old Testament, the, the, the Shema that they held too tightly, God wanted every single part of us to follow him. If you take nothing else away from this sermon, I hope that you hear this. Autopilot conformity of behavior without your heart is not what Christ wants from you. Routines and, and rituals and do's and don'ts aren't what he wants from you today. Jesus wants your, your heart. He wants to be active in it. He wants to transform it. He wants to engage with the dark corners in your heart. I, I wonder if that's a current reality this morning for you or not. Is Christ working in you? Is he molding the, the innermost parts of who you are? Or is he aligned a couple behaviors and you've, you, you've just kind of taken it from there from trying to continue to, to do what's like quote unquote right? On the flip side of that way, uh, the way the Pharisees were doing things back then would be the more Roman or modern day problem. The problem that that we modern day people fall into more often, uh, it says this, okay, the, the law was fulfilled in Christ perfectly. Since he carried it out and made sure it was taken care of, all the way, since, since he, he fulfilled the law, then we can live in grace to the point that Old Testament uh, laws about morality and, and drawing us to God, that they just don't matter. He established it. He fulfilled it. doesn't matter to us then. Can you see the pendulum swing there? They thought that behavior modification was all, and we struggle sometimes to believe that behavior modification is anything. When there's a healthy spot, probably in the middle. Where they intensely focused on behaving and following God's laws, we tend to not really put too much attention into God's laws at all. Again, it turns out that both of us need reforming. But you hear that, you know, that modern day people struggle to follow the law. If that bothers you, if that causes offense, my goal isn't to cause offense. But we still need to press further into it because I think there's some things we can learn from it. To prove that the moral law of God isn't maybe foremost on our mind, let's just look at the basics, the Ten Commandments. How worried are you, like right now? How, how intently focused are you on keeping the Sabbath holy? Whether you think it's about work or not working today, or it is a a strict observance of gathering with the people of God and worshiping and pushing other things away. I know that there's battles over which it is, but no matter which, are are you intently focused on keeping the Sabbath day holy? Is that a priority? Because it stands as something that God never told us to ignore. He actually says uh, the, the, the Sabbath will always remain that way. What about like the, the, the little things in, in our heart? How, how, much, how much coveting happens in there? How much desiring what other people have? How, how much jealousy is just kind of pressed away? What about lies, white lies? What about telling untruths? What about partial truths? What about avoiding the truth? What about how well we do with honoring our, our parents? What about the pursuit of idols, things that we find our meaning in instead of God? I point this out, not to try and shame us or drive us into a spot of fear, but just to show we tend to, because of grace, not pay as much attention to things that God never said don't pay attention to. 
Verse 19 speaks a little bit about this, though, about being a little bit too chill about obedience. Verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to, to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says in these texts, don't even think about thinking about me coming to destroy the Old Testament. I came to fulfill it. I came to see it carried out, to see it accomplished. But even if I've come to fulfill it, don't think that it doesn't matter anymore. Don't think obedience from an Old Testament perspective is no longer important. When Jesus says that if anyone relaxes uh, the least of these commandments uh, and teaches others to do the same, he's speaking of an attitude. He's speaking specifically uh, about when we rank things as important or not to God. When we speak for him and we make value judgments about things in the Bible, decide if they're a really big deal or a not big deal, and we begin to kind of project that to other people as, as well. When we begin to decide that God is totally fine with us doing things that he never, ever said that he was fine, or in the Old Testament he expressly prohibited, that's the point where, where he's talking about. It's a tricky saying to unpack, though, because he doesn't say you'll never enter the kingdom of God. He says you'll be the least on the kingdom of God, which what does that mean? Does that mean that you won't be saved if you make that mistake? No, but it does mean that blessing, reward, fruitfulness, joy, and, and really your usefulness will all be sacrificed to the extent that you are okay with disobedience. Does it mean that you're kicked out of God's family? No. Your communion with God, your ability to be on mission, just your joy of knowing him will be affected on this side of eternity and on the other, though. Jesus is calling us to see. Make sure, friends, that we aren't so subtly forgetting how we live. That our obedience is meant to free us from slavery and sin, not put us in it. So this isn't a bad call. It isn't all of a sudden going to fire and brimstone. It's saying Jesus calls us still obey and engage our heart at the same time. So verse 20, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. For a long time, I've heard this text interpreted to mean something fairly one-sided, that a, a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees meant that even though the Pharisees obeyed rules phenomenally well, that since our efforts would never be enough to save us, we will have to instead have the righteousness of Jesus, the only righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees, to be saved. Basically, don't be like the Pharisees who relied only on their behavior. Instead, rely only on Jesus. And while that interpretation is 100% accurate, that Christ alone is the source of our righteousness, and without following him, we would be absolutely lost. I think we, the way we kind of run with that interpretation probably needs a little bit of help. So you, generally, I believe we take that truth and say, so since our good works don't save us, just focus on Jesus. Just, just let him take the wheel. He's enough. Just sit back and let Jesus do all the heavy lifting, and you just... The harder things get, just, just, just believe more and more and more in his kindness. And I'm using hyperbole a bit to make a point here, but that interpretation, I believe, makes no sense in, in light of the entire sermon. 
let's make sure we're not going theologically sideways. The, the Pharisees pursued external behavior modification. Faith in God is all about what you do and what you don't do. Right? So they, they pursued external behavior modification without the heart. This is why Jesus said things like, you whitewashed tombs. Outside you look great. Inside, I haven't actually been there. Being in good standing with God was all about what you did or didn't do, but God doesn't just want to change your behavior. He wants to change your heart. On the other hand, our generation struggles to, to try and offer our heart in such a way without necessarily letting that engage our behavior. But this too falls short of the full beauty of what God is aiming at. God doesn't just want your heart. He also wants your behavior. No, your behavior doesn't save you, but it will be changed if you're saved. What Jesus is doing when he says the righteousness that exceeds the Pharisees was not throwing out any call to personal holiness. He's just recalibrating us. He's saying, I don't want one part of you. It's not one or the other. I haven't come to fragment who you are. I've come to save entirely the entire part of who you are which brings about a heart that's engaged with faith, and that heart also engages your behavior. And both of those are meshed into the faith that Jesus calls us to. Each section that follows in chapter 6 further proves this. As Jesus will talk about things like divorce and anger and lust and how those laws were meant to engage not just our external behavior but our heart as well. That's why he said things not like if, if you cheat on someone only you've done something wrong. But if you think about doing something with someone who's not yours you've done something wrong. He, he wants to engage your full person. This recalibration from Christ I believe offers us a moment to pause though. Because here's the reality. He's not drawing us into legalism. And he's also not drawing us into like this flighty liberalism. Saying, I want to engage your heart. And I want that to affect your behavior. I want to be in every single part of your life. I don't want to be compartmentalized away from this part of how you act. And I don't want to be compartmentalized away from this part of your heart either. Let me in both of those spots. What this does from King Jesus is it offers us a moment to pause and let the Holy Spirit speak to us just a little bit about how we're following Christ. Are we following him with our actions? Are we following him with our heart? Are we following him with both? Are we following him with neither? Is the king reigning? And in what spots of our life is he reigning in? Because quite easily we can slip into obedience without an engaged heart. Or we can offer our heart in a way that doesn't really worry about obedience, as if that's actually possible. See, the beauty of the light of the world texts is that it shines a change of, of both. What we shine into the world is, is a change of our actions, but a change of our heart. We, to be salt and, and to be the light of the world, it is to show the world that Jesus has changed you from the inside out. To declare the reality of what Jesus has done in you and to you in a beautiful way. So church, I have a feeling today that Jesus would possibly want to beckon in a fresh way all of us. Can we, can we be humble enough to say that like, we get a little off trajectory sometimes? Some of our MOs will be one side of the spectrum, some will be the other. But I have this feeling that, that 
that for some of you, Jesus will be whispering into I know into your ear, I know 2020 has been really hard, but I haven't been near your heart in quite a while. Can we talk about that? I think that's the way he would engage some of us. Yeah, you haven't gone off the rails in your obedience. You've actually done pretty good there. You haven't rested in me, though. Can you come? Do you want to talk? Or maybe on the flip side, maybe healthy recalibration is the other side. You're listening to worship music. You've read your Bible. You're praying more than you ever have. But something's gone a little sideways in what you're actually doing, though. You calibrate time to have heart time with me, and then your actions separate from that. Don't communicate the reality of being close to me. I think that's probably what Jesus would say, hey, if if your heart is separate from me, come close. If your actions are not being paid attention to, say, may I have free reign to speak to you over that? When he draws those people in back in that day and when he draws us in as well, I hope that we see that this is his kindness. It says in Hebrews, a, a, a good father comes after his children. Right? He's not coming after throwing haymakers and gentle kindness. He's saying, hey, things are a little off. I, I'm not just going to let you go and hope it works out. I, I, would, I would rather come and pursue your heart. The reality is Jesus gave all of himself in order to get all of us. And that's a beautiful thing because what we understand is there's more freedom and more blessing and more joy when you don't hold anything back from him. Today we'll take communion in worship. And the text says this, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 26. It says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The beautiful part of the table, and when we take, is... Even if we need realignment or recalibration, the beauty is the table's still open. He doesn't say you're kicked out of the kingdom of God. He's offering, he's offering us a, a better spot to be in so you can still come even if you realize, man, my heart has really been just super far from you or my actions have been kind of fast and, and loose. The reality is that the, the body and the blood is still there for you. You're still brought near. You're still cared for. Grace still covers you. But the beauty of when you take today is you could remember the sacrifice of a Savior that proves that he has your best interest in mind. So I pray as we close in worship that maybe you would just ask the Spirit, hey, what needs to be recalibrated? What needs to be changed? What, what would you want to adjust in me and give him free reign to speak into your ear and to process some things with your heart today? You guys can come back up. Let's pray. got to pray. I pray today as we close. Father, just draw near to us. Holy Spirit, we need you. We just confess what a weird time we're in. 
election bearing down, Halloween yesterday, crazy pandemic, 2020 mess. I think our hearts are bound up. So I pray that you draw near to us today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you come, that you guide us, that you give us your wisdom, that you lead us to where you want us to go. We need you to interact with us. We confess that there are times that that we keep our heart away from you, King Jesus. There are also times that we just pretend that our our actions and holiness aren't that big of a deal. So I, I pray that you have free reign to draw us into you, to see that you're good, that we may see the beauty of your gospel freshly today, that you would draw us in. Jesus, be glorified. Pray that you make much of yourself, Holy Spirit, draw near to us. We need you. We pray this in your name.